0: Keep showing up, so that's a good sign. Amen. <laughs> Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> well, we remember that Jesus stated very plainly in Matthew, chapter 11 that he desires for his people to have soul rest and i think probably over the course of the week we've kind of laid out at least briefly that there are lots of different things that can come into our lives that would rob us of that and deprive us of that Uh, but really the answer always is a matter of just reorienting our perspective getting back in the word of god uh, developing and Renewing our fellowship with the Lord Jesus, and um, I don't think there's really anything that can occur to us in the spiritual realm, the inner man, that the Word of God and the Holy Spirit cannot fix. And, um, you know, a lot of it is just believing that, just believing it, because when you believe it, you'll apply yourselves more diligently to it. And um, you will find some help. You will find some help. Plenty of people can bear testimony to that. So we're uh, (coughs) going to look at one more character tonight in the Bible, and uh, then tomorrow night we'll kind of try to wrap things up on a note that will hopefully be helpful. So let's have some prayer, and we'll have some introduction here, and then we'll get into the sermon. (coughs) Our Father, we're grateful tonight that we have the opportunity and the privilege to come into your presence. And oh Lord, I just pray you'd help us to again be reminded of how much we need you. And Lord, just to be conscious and cautious as it relates to having an awareness of how many things there are in this life that war against our soul. I pray, Father, that we would always look to you and your word to be a bulwark against those things. And Lord, knowing that in you we have help in a time of trouble, and whatever that trouble may be, however severe it may be that you're near and that you're always near. And even if we don't necessarily see it in the immediate context, we can just have faith that it's true because your Bible and your word assures us of such things and so father i pray that you would bless the word of god tonight i pray that you would use it in our hearts to again just encourage us to challenge us you know the need of each heart tonight we just pray that each of those needs would be met and we'll give you the praise and the glory for it and it's in jesus name i pray amen well in the sermon tonight we're going to turn our attention to a source of soul trouble that we, especially given the culture that we live in, are very susceptible to. I'd be inclined to suggest that we really all wrestle with it at some level. Probably over the course of our lives, we'll wrestle with it more than we do at other times. And you know, some people probably, just like everything, some people probably really struggle with this quite often. And and uh, and uh, they and, uh, and 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 they uh, they really have a hard time managing it and keeping their focus the way it needs to be. And so I hope that uh, the message tonight will help all of us in that regard. And, you know, I think about, <clears throat> I think about particularly this issue tonight, and uh, awareness probably is one of the most important components of being able to address this potential trouble in our soul. This is, a, this is an area where it can be very easy just to kind of write it off and say, well, you know, I'm not, this is not really something that's causing a problem for me. This is not something that's really um, something that's uh, creating trouble in my soul. This is not something that's depriving me of soul rest. This is not something that even potentially could be, a, be creating depression or, or discouragement in my life. But I, I think a lot of times when we're facing those kinds of things, we might want to take a step back and maybe really consider this. <clears throat> the, the nature of the trouble is thoroughly chronicled in the life of one who is particularly suited to speak to us on the issue in fact the person in fact wrote a whole dissertation that lays out the premise of the problem and then really at one verse at the end of his thesis he sums up the remedy and as I was looking at that again today and thinking about that and you know we we get to talking about problems and things that deprive us of soul rest and sometimes we get to looking at all the different uh, perceptions that we can have of that and it can seem like problems are very complicated and probably sometimes they are. There's a lot of different things at work that create us not having soul rest. But at the end of the day, I think really always the answer is pretty simple. And in fact, hardly ever is the answer as complex as the problem might be. And I don't think that there's any, any of these sermons that I've preached that illustrate that more than the one tonight. So in this sermon, we're going to be considering Solomon a secularized soul. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You know, Solomon began his reign with humility And in fact, when he could ask for anything, he asked for wisdom, understanding his inadequacy for the task that was at hand. But most of us are probably familiar with his story and his narrative. And uh, in time, over the course of time, because of some decisions that he made, Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord by strange women. Would it be possible for me to get some water? My voice is struggling a little bit tonight. Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord by strange women and uh, in fact the Bible records the reality that he had 700 pagan wives and 300 concubines and the Bible relates that Solomon loved these women I don't know that that wasn't necessarily a Wholesome and spiritual way, but clearly it's an indication that he was attracted to them, and that, really, more importantly, he had given his heart to these women. And the reality is, is that the Bible also states, "Thank you, sir." The Bible also states <clears throat> that these women uh, turned his heart from the Lord. Okay. Okay, if you're going to do that. (laughs) No, you're good, you're good. (laughs) Um, So Solomon here has left us a solemn testimony related to the lack of rest afforded. Thank you, sir, appreciate it. (laughs) Now I probably won't take another drink through the whole sermon, but I'll... uh, there you go, brother. There you go. You nailed it. <clears throat> yeah. um, uh. Solomon, Solomon left us a solemn, a solemn testimony related to the lack of rest afforded to a soul that becomes secularized. And I want to make sure we're all on the same page here when I'm using the term secularized. I looked it up in the English dictionary, and this is the definition it gives, and so this is, this is how we're going to be working with the Word tonight. The idea is to disassociate or separate from religious or spiritual concerns. So, when we're becoming secularized, we're separating ourselves from religious, and I'm not too crazy about that word, but it would have some application. But, religious, this is the word I really like, and spiritual concerns. So, we're creating distance between ourselves and those kinds of things, which ultimately, and I think we all know this, is that when we find ourselves doing that, that we're actually becoming more and more temporal in our thinking, and less and less thinking about things in light of eternity, and in view of eternity, and consequently making our decisions less and less in view of eternity. In fact, the recurring phrase in Ecclesiastes that alerts us to the fact that the text is addressing the problem of secularization is three words, and it's over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. That phrase occurs over and over again, in fact Ecclesiastes is the only book in the Bible where this phrase is used, under the sun, and we read past these words no less than 29 times in 27 verses. Almost two and a half times a chapter on average. Every seven and a half verses on average this phrase under the sun appears. So there's no mistaking the reality that Solomon is giving us a view of life when it is lived in the context of under the sun. He's giving us a perspective of a life that's being lived in a very temporal and short-sighted context. In fact chapter 7 and 11 are the only two chapters where the phrase does not appear. I think Ecclesiastes 1.14 lays out the problem in stark terms that betrays a troubled soul. Solomon wrote in chapter 1 and verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. I don't know if you note know it, but the word vexation has come up here again came up in a sermon a couple of nights ago, and then on Sunday. Because when we're talking about not having soul rest, really the nature of that is that our soul is being vexed by some means, whether it's through the spiritual world or through the physical world. Under the sun living is living life disassociated and separate from religious and spiritual concerns. And make no mistake about it, to the degree that we become secularized, We will have a troubled soul. We will have our soul being vexed. And I think there's a very real danger. And, you know, I mentioned all of you have come back every night. And so this is particularly applicable. Because there is a very real danger of attending church and maintaining the language of faith while our soul slips into a secularized state. I'm convinced that there's a lot of people sitting in sound Baptist churches that are very secular in their outlook. And they're coming and they're listening to the preaching every time the doors are open. They're showing up at all the revival meetings. They're showing up at outreach. They're doing all of those things But their life, really, when it comes down to living it and their perspective and their attitude and where their heart is at and what their desires are, it has become very secularized. And the reality is that we get comfortable with that. And, you know, we'll we'll go through times where we don't have peace and, and maybe we wouldn't use the term vexed, but our soul is being vexed and... And maybe, maybe on some of those occasions we'd actually look at that and, and say to ourselves, well, I don't really know why, why I'm feeling this way. I mean, look at everything that I have. Look at my family. Look at all of this. Look at the job that I have. And the fact that you're pointing to all of those things may in fact be a symptom of the problem. In fact, we end up, as the Scripture warns, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. I don't know about you, I never read those words without it causing me to shudder just a bit and have a little fear, because this is a very deceptive thing. Because oftentimes, if we have the form, we just take it for granted that we have the power. And yet the scripture warns us that we can actually have the form in place, and yet not have the power of God in our lives, or in our families, or in our churches. We have the trappings of religion, but we've abandoned the commitment. Worldly affairs dominate our thinking. Many a believer today, no doubt, is having problems with depression and discouragement and a troubled heart because they have allowed their soul at some level and to some degree to become secularized. I think on this account, Solomon has much to teach us. So there's several things that we're going to know, and I think all of this is going to be borne out in the book of Ecclesiastes, and really what I'm I'm trying to do here tonight is to help us think about, is this true of me? In any degree, have have I allowed myself to slip in the direction of Having a secularized soul. So let, let's think about what that looks like from Ecclesiastes and Solomon's testimony. Number one, a secular soul is a desperate soul. Chapters one, chapter one, verses one through eleven. There are several things that are mentioned here. <laughs> In verses two and three, we find that really Solomon opens this book with the conclusion. Because in verses 2 and 3, he says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh, and here's the first time it's used, under the sun, in a temporal setting? So this word vanity is used over and over, even in these couple of verses, and it's used several times throughout the scripture, throughout the throughout the book. Here, here he opens it with this uh, very strong salvo of vanity of vanities. He goes so far as to repeat that vanity of vanities. He goes so far as to even hammer it one more time and say all is vanity I don't know about you but that sounds like a very desperate condition if I were to stand back and look at my life and come to a place where I'm saying vanity of vanities vanity of vanities all is vanity that's a very desperate condition to be in because really what you're saying is nothing that I've done nothing that I'm giving my life to really amounts to anything it has no meaning in it it's hard to believe a man could be in this place and not be depressed not be discouraged and let's just face it not even potentially be suicidal most people that are suicidal would probably never use this terminology But the fact that they're entertaining that means that they've embraced the sentiment of vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This word vanity, I'm sure you know, just carries the idea of emptiness. So everything's empty in the sense that it has no value. It involves the idea of being unsatisfactory. So, you know, whatever it is that you've been giving your life to, wherever your energies have been placed, whatever your commitment has been to, it's left you unsatisfied. And make no mistake about it, we live in a world that's full of people like that. Certainly it's going to be true of the lost world, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of believers that are experiencing that very thing. And I think it largely has to do with the fact that they've allowed their soul at some level to become secularized. In fact, he says in verse 2, what profit is a man's labor under the sun? So in essence, he's, he's calling into question self-purpose. You know, all that I've done, all that everyone else I, I've observed and all that they've done, what profit is that? What profit is there? I've watched this man, I've watched what this person's given their life to, I'm aware of what I've given my life to, and what profit is there in all of this? That's a bad place to be. And a secular soul is manifested in a desperate conclusion. In verses 4 through 7, I see a desperate perspective. Look in verses 4 through 7. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to its place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to the circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Now, we read that, and we, on the face of it, we just say, "Well, yeah, all of, that, all of that's true. That's that's an accurate assessment of what's uh, what, what's taking place in the world in which we live." But that's that's the real problem with it, and it being expressed like it is. This idea of the generations coming and going—you know, really—the whole point here is nothing really changes. No matter what I do, no matter what I give my life to, no matter what anybody else does, nothing really changes. Everything just always moves along like it always has. It's true in respect to the generations that come and go. You know, I've often thought about it. Most of the time I think about it in the context of missions. But do you realize in 75 years, most of the people living on the planet will not be here anymore. It will almost be populated by an entirely different group of people. If you go back 75 years, how many of you were here 75 years ago? One? There's my point illustrated. 75 years ago, only one of us was here. Boy, you get to look at that and say, well, what's the use And particularly if you get to looking at it with an under the sun perspective, what difference does it really make? He talks about the rising and the setting of the sun. Not exactly sure how applicable that is here, but in the civilized parts of the world, <laughs> you, know, you know, the sun comes up and it goes down all year long. And it's like, you know, the amazing thing about it is, is they can, they can look 10, 20 years, 100 years into the future and tell you when the sun's going to come up, precisely what time. Right. It's like it's just all on automatic, and it's just all happening, and it just keeps happening, and, you know, what's the use? The wind comes and goes. Everybody says, the wind doesn't blow in Fairbanks. The wind doesn't blow in Fairbanks. Blown every day since I've been here. The wind does that, right? It just blows and it comes and it goes. The hydrological cycle, a big word for you, right? Rains, snows, the melt, the runoff, runs into the rivers and into bigger rivers and into bigger rivers and then into the oceans and it evaporates and it rains again and it's just the same thing over and over again nothing changes and I think really what Solomon is driving at here as he's looking at this with an under the sun perspective is we don't really make a difference and you know what if we think we don't make a difference then nothing matters and you know what if I come to believe that I don't matter that's a pretty desperate conclusion that's a pretty desperate soul And we'd probably, you know, it's easy, and it's going to especially be true of lost people, but it can even be true of saved people. You know, people have a great big smile on their face all the time. A lot of people, most people have a big smile. People you work with, they're smiling, acting like they're having a great time, acting like life is grand, life is good, got a nice house, got a nice car, got a great job, a wife and a family. But on the inside, they're like, what is even all of this about? Does any of this really matter? And again, I would suggest to you that even believers can fall into that trap because their own soul becomes secularized. In verses 8 through 13, I see a desperate philosophy. He says, All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. He goes on in verse 10, "'Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new?' It has been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. So again, Solomon is just basically expressing, for example, if you'd see in verse 8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The reality is, is that we're just never satisfied. Listen, if you're never satisfied, your soul's going to be vexed. There's a passage in Proverbs. I've got a message on these verses about the horse leech. Cryeth, give, give. It's very hard for people, and particularly in a prosperous country like we live in, to ever come to the place and say, it's enough. It's enough. I have enough but you know truth be known probably every one of us here tonight already have enough but tell me does this not resonate with you the eye is never satisfied with seeing and the ear is never satisfied with it. because there's always something new to see there's always something new to hear my wife and I went on vacation last summer to uh Arizona, in the southern part of the state, and we spent a week there and enjoyed that. And we got here, and Susie started talking about being in the northern part of the state where the Grand Canyon was at. And you know what I immediately thought? I need to go see that. I haven't seen that. Is it just me? Solomon says, There's nothing new under the sun. I think really when he's dealing with all of this in these verses 8 through 13, and particularly when he talks about the generations coming and going, really what he's saying is we'll not be remembered. And therefore we do not matter. And you know the truth of the matter is, you've got to do something really, 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 really terrible, or really, 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 really great, to have even the slightest chance of being remembered. And then even given enough time, that may not be good enough. I mean, you know, we get to in our lives and we think we're pretty important. Like I'm cutting a wide swath. I carry some influence. I have some weight, right? And then we die one day. And people show up at our funeral and they cry about it hopefully. <laughs> and the people that really loved us, they'll mourn for several weeks, maybe months, maybe a year, maybe not. Most people won't. You know, I'm pretty sure, I, I, I hope I don't die before I'm not pastoring. I hope I, I live a little longer than that. But if I was to drop dead today, I didn't make it back to Texas. You know what? Faith Baptist Church in Freeport's having services on Wednesday and next Sunday. That's going to happen. You say, well, you're not going to be. You'll be dead, but they'll be in church. If I drop dead before I get back to Texas, I'm scheduled to drive a school bus next Friday morning. If I don't show up because I died, guess what? Somebody else will be driving Route 7. And everybody at the bus barn will be saying, Wow, Mr. McIntyre passed away while he was in Alaska. Wow, that's shocking. He looked like he was in good health. Right? He wasn't even really that old. And two weeks later, They'll just be driving their routes and probably won't hardly give me another thought. That's depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Just dwell on that, and that's depressing. To think that you could live 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years and die, and within a few months, nobody even really remembers you. I I presume, I'm a little older than my wife, so my, my plan is that we like die within a few months of each other. But if she outlives me, there will come a time where she'll probably still think about me, but she will think about me less and less. And she will go on with life, and she better not get married again. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> but that does happen, doesn't it? Why? Because a generation comes, and ge- there's really nothing, does it even really matter? And boy, if you, get, if you really thought about that, and you pondered on that, and your, your whole life was about what was going on here... Yeah, you let your soul get secularized, you're gonna find yourself in some soul trouble. There's got to be more than that. So a secular soul is a desperate soul. A secular soul is a searching soul. Look, if you will, in verses 12 through 15 of verse of chapter one. Bible says, I the preacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sword travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight and that which is wanting cannot be numbered I communed with my own heart, saying, "Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had exercised had great experience of wisdom and knowledge." In other words, <laughs> what Solomon is saying here in verses twelve through fifteen is that there's really no purpose outside of spiritual reality. The answer is not in activity. The answer The answer is not in just going to, you know, where where I live, there's a lot of chemical plants and there's, there's shift work. There's a lot of money to be made. And these guys, they'll go out, they'll work 12, 14, 16 hours a day as often as they can. So they can just buy a bigger truck, a taller truck. They never pull a trailer. Never carry a piece of sheetrock. I'm serious. It's true of some of them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. You know what that means your truck is? A status symbol. You know what that's worth? Nothing. You say, no, I paid $95,000 for it. It's still worth nothing. People can be tied up in that very thing. Well, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to get this piece of property. I'm going to go to work. We're going to build a a house we want. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go to work. But at the end of the day, there's no profit in that. And you may well build your own house, but I guarantee you, it won't be five years before you're wanting to remodel and change something. Somebody say amen. (laughs) so what I'm saying is that tendency is the inclination to slip into a secularized soul If I just get one more remodel I'll be happy then if I just step up in vehicle then I'll be happy if I just make if I just make $5 an hour more I'll be satisfied How many of you are making money now that 10, 15 years ago you thought to yourself, well, if I could make that much money, I'd be completely happy. And now you're making that much money and say, you know what? It'd be nice to make a couple of dollars more an hour. You say, yeah, but inflation and all of that. Yeah, I know, I know. We don't always make excuses while we're not satisfied. You getting the point? Look at verse 16. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I commune with my own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 17, And I gave my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Listen, wisdom disconnected from spiritual reality. You know what? The answer is not in education and intellectual development I mean we really our nation does people a great disservice when it comes to education this idea that everybody needs to go to college everybody needs to go to the university everybody needs to have a four-year degree everybody needs to have a master's everybody needs to have a doctorate and a lot of these people are going and getting degrees in things that they're not going to be able to make sixty thousand dollars a year with Come on. And they'll they'll end up with what? $100,000, $150,000 of debt. Tell me you're not going to have vexation of spirit. You know, it's chasing the dream. Listening to what the world says, and well, that must be the right thing to do. Listen, I'm not suggesting it's always wrong to go to the university and get more education. What I'm saying is, if you think that's going to make you happy, if you think that's going to bring your satisfaction, you're going to be woefully disappointed because it won't. Look in chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water to water there with the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle, above all that were before me in Jerusalem. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and all the delights of the son of men as musical instruments and that of all sort so so I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem also my wisdom remained with me he goes on in verse 10 and whatsoever mine eye, listen to this, whatsoever mine eye desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not from my heart any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion in all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity. And not only was it vanity, it was vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. Listen, you give your heart and life to just having more and more and more. And when you've got more than you think you could ever do with, you'll find out that it's vanity. And when it dawns on you that it's vanity, it's going to cause vexation of spirit. You know, these uber rich people. The, the guy that used to be the, the, the founder of Amazon, I can't remember his name now, but I saw an article one time where he has like, like multi million dollar properties, like, all, like 12 or 13 of them. And like, so I wonder which one made him happy. The fact that he has as many as he does alerts me to something. He'll never be able to have enough of them to make him happy. People say, well, you know, he just, he just got too much. He's just too, he's just too wealthy. You know, I hear people say that. I say, you know what? If you order anything from Amazon, I don't want to hear it. That's always rooted in jealousy. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but all that he has—it's not making him wealthy. What? Didn't he just get a divorce? I think, saw that somewhere. He's divorced, has a girlfriend or something. Yeah, tell, tell me he hadn't looked at it. Oh, he's putting on a big smile and wearing the fancy clothes and jet-setting around the world and you know all of that. But I guarantee you, by this time he knows it's vanity. Make no mistake about it. He's got some vexation in his soul. I don't say that with joy or glee. It's a sad thing. And it's especially sad when believers try to emulate that, even if it's on a greatly diminished scale. Look in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, I hated life. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. My, what a troubled conclusion! For someone, you know, when you when somebody gets to the point where they say, "I hate life," I, I don't know about you, but just a few people I've dealt with, when people are saying that, they're in a very precarious place in their life, and that's the kind of thing that people that are contemplating harming themselves. Would say, "I hate life." Well, the only reason people get to the point where they hate life is because they've been looking at it from the wrong perspective, and that's what creates those feelings. Solomon, the, the work wrought under the sun, he said, "It's grievous to me." So I've got all of this. I've been able, you know, I, I, we just read there he had men singers and women singers. You know, we have Spotify. And we think that's great. Can you imagine actually having the resources to have men singers and women singers at your disposal? And yet Solomon said, it was all grievous to me. I'm sure when he first got to the point where he had women singers and men singers and he was sitting on his throne or uh, lounging on the porch or whatever. He thought, man, this is living the life. But you know, how many days in a row do they have to sing before that becomes commonplace? You say, well, it's never commonplace because most people can't do that. But if you can do it, it will become commonplace. You know, it's like when you buy a car whether it's a brand new one or it's new to you, you park on the on the outside of the parking lot because you don't want anybody ding your door opening their door. But then after you've been driving it for about seven years, you don't even mind pulling into the driveway with your truck and ding your car door yourself. I, I do that quite often to our car with my truck door. Because listen. Nothing new stays new. And nothing that we think, boy, this is really the thing to have, we will not always believe that. So a secular soul is a searching soul. Listen, are are you just here, you find yourself just always searching for the next thing. It can be the next gadget. Oh, okay, whoa, whoa. Now Now you're going too far, here preacher. Don't talk about the fact I stood in line overnight for the next iPhone. We just got new phones. We went into a two, We went into a T-Mobile store, and they said, "Well, what are you trading in? Maybe we can give you some money for them." I said, "Well, I said, I doubt it, because I think they're like the S22s or something the and so what are you trading in? We both had S7s. He's like, whoa, that's old. He said, I think, I don't think I've seen anybody trading one of those for like a long time. But you know, the, the weird thing about that is that was only like six or seven years ago. It wasn't like it was 100 years. It wasn't a rotary phone. It wasn't a ching, ching, ching hello 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 you know it wasn't one of those it was actually a smartphone whoa you like need to be trading up more often my my son of course he's younger than me so you know the tablets and all of that and he said dad you really ought to go to using a tablet I was like you know I I don't know I don't know if I trust him I, I just don't know about that and so I was just, he's mentioned it every once in a while. I'd, I'd hedge on it and I'd fudge on it. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm good. So for Christmas, my church got me this. <laughs> and, of course, you know who drove that decision. When he gave it to me, he gave it to me at church. When I got home that night, he texted me. He said, if you don't want it, you can trade it in for something else. I was like... Yeah, right. So, okay, I give. I give. I'm pretty sure I would have never spent the money on one. I don't think I would have. But, you know, I've learned one thing. Not Be careful about saying it. Because I remember when cell phones first started coming out, I remember distinctly, and I learned a lesson from this, standing in the pulpit and saying, why would anyone want to carry a phone around with them? I don't even like having one in my house some of the time. Why in the world would you carry it around with you? And about three years later, I was carrying one around with me. <laughs> so, but am I any happier now that I'm carrying a cell phone, a smartphone, whatever? No. Could you make the argument that I'm less happy? Probably. You were mentioning it the other night? Just distracted. I mean, if you grew up with that stuff, you might not realize it. But I was in my late 30s, early 40s before all this started coming along. I mean, I'd been pastoring for seven or eight years before computers, home computers really caught on. And I guarantee you, I'm more distracted than I used to be. And you say, well, it's just because you're getting older, but I think there's more to it than that. But we think the next little thing, the next little gadget, well, no, not really. Not really. You know, another thing, too, here's another way we can know if we're slipping slipping into a secularized soul, and that is that a secular soul is a settling soul. That is, we settle for less than we could have. Look in chapter 2, verse 4. That's not. 2.24, 2.24, excuse me, 2.24. <clears throat> There's nothing better for a man than, than that he should... Okay, I want to slow down here. There is nothing better for a man. That's a mouthful right there. Yeah. There's nothing better for a man <clears throat> than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labors. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. Now just let that soak soak in for a minute. Look in chapter 3, verse 12. Bible says this: I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor, it is Is the gift of God. Look in chapter 3, verse 22, the Bible says, Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion, for who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Look in chapter 5 and verse 18. The Bible says this: Behold, that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Look in chapter 8 and verse 15. The Bible says, Then I commended mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life which God giveth unto him under the sun. Chapter 9 and verse 7. (coughs) The Bible says, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thine wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge. Nor wisdom in the grave, whether thou goest. I don't know if you. There, there were a couple of things there that were kind of recurring in those places we read. One of them is basically this philosophy: eat, drink, and be merry. That doesn't sound very spiritual, actually. Another thing that he says is this: all there is. Quite frankly, I don't believe that is all there is. And if I start thinking that's all there is, because my soul has become secularized. And the degree to which I not only think it, because we have a unique way of not thinking too much about things that we're actually doing. So we're practicing the secularization of our lives, but we're not thinking that that's what's happening. But in fact, it is. <clears throat> in fact, this whole idea of eat and drink, <clears throat> kind of that rang a bell with me. Is there any, any of you think of any other place where it talks about eat, take ease, eat, drink. Seems like there's a place, maybe somewhere in Luke. Uh, I think something about something about building bigger barns? Has something to do with that? Take thine ease? Eat, drink, be merry? God said, thou fool. You're a fool. How many people, let's just hit this a leg. How many people spend their whole life trying to get their retirement set up just right? So when they come to the end of their working days as early as possible, they have a big stash of money somewhere and they'll be able to try to fill their eyes with seeing and their ears with hearing. Come on. You may even know some people who have done that because I could name you several people that I know over the course of my short life who retired and within a year they were dead listen I'm not for. Uh, listen, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't make preparations for when we can't generate income otherwise you're going to be a pauper and you're, <laughs> you're going to be living off your kids and all of that and I, I'm really not for that but what I am saying is a lot of people go way beyond that they're, they're looking at their retirement as the time when they're going to be able to live it up come on that's when, that's when we're really going to be able to live. The kids will be out of the house. and will just be mama and me, and, and we'll be able to travel. We'll be able to do that. We'll be able to upgrade houses. You know, we'll be able to drive nicer cars. And then either you or mama dies. And you know what? If I had a billion dollars in the bank, and when I, leave, when I leave pastoring and not driving a school bus, if I have a billion dollars in the bank, and my wife dies, it's not going to mean very much anymore. You see what he's saying here? Really, what he's saying is settle for it, because that's all there is. This is is as good as it gets. You see, a secular soul is a settling soul. I mean, should, should our soul settle for, well, there's nothing better? Should our soul settle for, this is my portion under the sun? I don't think so. No. A secular soul, really, at the end of the day, is an empty soul. I'm not gonna have you to all of these because it would it would take a little bit. So I'm just gonna give them to you. At least most. I may I may bell out somewhere along the way. You, I want, but I want you to get the sense of it. A secular soul is an empty soul. Chapter 1, verse 2, we read that. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 1.14, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. 2.1, this also is vanity. 2.11, behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. 2.15, this also is vanity. 2.17, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. 2.19, this is also vanity. 2.21, this also is vanity and a great evil. 2.23, this is also vanity. 2.26, this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. 3.19, for all is vanity. 4.4, 4, this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. 4.8, this is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. 4.16, this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. 5.7, in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also divers vanities. 5.10, this is also vanity. 6, Two. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. Six four. For he cometh in with vanity. Six nine. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Six eleven. Seeing that there are many things that increase vanity. Seven six. This is also vanity. Seven fifteen. In the days of my vanity. Eight ten. This is also vanity. Eight fourteen. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth. Nine nine. All the days of thy vanity. Eleven eight. All that cometh is vanity. Eleven ten. For childhood and youth are vanity. Twelve eight. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. All. All is vanity. But for some reason, we all struggle. We all struggle getting that in there. And we wake up somewhere, we just don't feel satisfied. And life's just not going like I wanted it to. and Well, it may be you've become a little too secularized in your soul. Because I guarantee you, it's going to disappoint you every time. It may not be the next day. It may be some years down the road. But it's dis- everything's going to disappoint you. The things you buy are going to disappoint you. Your house is going to disappoint you. Come on. Your co-workers are going to disappoint you. Your church members are going to disappoint you. Your pastor is going to disappoint you. People that we pastor are going to disappoint us. Come on. Everything that we could possibly give our heart and life to in this world will disappoint us at some level at some point. It's all vanity and vexation of spirit. Well, I tell you what, we better be looking beyond all this. It's interesting to me that this book basically opens and closes, because I mentioned at the outset, he actually opens with the conclusion, and that's validated here, because in chapter one, verse two, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, saith the preacher. And then in 12 eight, almost at the very end of the book, Vanity of vanity, said, the preacher, all is vanity. And everything in between those two spots is validating that reality. And you know the thing about it is that Solomon was a man who could have the experiences to relate this to us. He said, well, if I could just try it, like you'd think you'd end up different than Solomon. And we wouldn't. Well, if I had what he had, I know I would be happy for a day. And then we'd be right where he's at. No less than 28 times in 12 chapters are we reminded that the secular world, the secular soul is an empty soul. Living life disconnected from spiritual realities is empty living. And empty living deprives one of soul rest. Now, here's the good news about this. And that is a secular soul can be rescued. And you know, it it is remarkable. I kind of touched on it at the very outset. But we've got 12 full chapters of laying out how desperate this problem is. And so I need 12 chapters to tell me how to fix this. Somebody write a book, please. Somebody make a pill. Somebody give me a therapy session. Let me talk out my troubles for the next 15 years. I'm going to do you a great favor tonight. Actually, the Lord is. He's going to use me to communicate it to you. Look in verse 8 to begin with, of chapter 12. Vanity of vanity, said the preacher, all is vanity. You know, given everything that's been said to this point, this would... This would have seemed a fitting place to end such a dirge as we've been pursuing and perusing here. Ecclesiastes is a powerful and moving lamentation of an empty soul, a soul that is living disconnected from spiritual realities, a soul that has become secularized. But you notice in verse 9, Solomon writes these words And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. He gave good heed and sought out in order many proverbs and then in verse 13 you knew this was coming didn't you let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter and you'll notice we're pretty close to the end there is isn't going to take a chapter or 12 chapters or two books or three therapists or anything else to get right. Just a few words can remedy this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Wow. Boy, I, I am such a simple person. I love this. Because if I find myself in a place where my soul is feeling empty and I feel the vexation settling upon my spirit, I can come to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and say, Hey, listen up, preacher. This is all you've got to do. Fear God and keep His commandments. Oh, man. Okay, I can can actually remember that. I don't have to go back next Tuesday for another session. I don't have to go back in three months to refill my prescription. I get to self-medicate. And it's free, offered free by the grace of an almighty God. Listen folks, don't let the world rob us of what we have in Him. Don't let the world rob us of the sufficiency of who He is, of the sufficiency of this book. I know it's sophisticated. It makes people feel sophisticated to talk about the psychologists that they're going to, and I'm on this antidepressant, and it makes it feel like they're really doing something, but they're not. These two things, fear God and keep his commandments. Is just simply communicating to us that we need to stay connected to spiritual realities. All of this about this is under the sun. Well, you know what? I'm looking beyond the sunrises and the sunsets. I got my eyes lifted a little higher than that. I got my eyes looking a little bit over the horizon and knowing, you know what? All things aren't always going to be the same. Amen? One of these days, it's all going to melt with a fervent heat. Amen? One of these days, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. It's not always going to be the same. And I can live my life today in a way that will make a difference in that day. And boy, I'll tell you what, that's better than any Cadillac you can drive. That's better than making $10 an hour more. That's better than building a new house. Boy, that's where you have soul rest because it matters then. It matters then. It's communicating to us that God is living and involved And that God is to be obeyed. You see, the soul is at rest when it's God-focused. And probably most of you can bear testimony to a time in your life when you were shaken, but God gave you the grace to stay focused on Him. And through it all, you had soul rest. Listen, if we can't have soul rest in the troubling times, and it ain't worth much. I need to be focused on that which is to come. I need to be living this temporal life in the light of eternal life to come. This is the answer. This is the answer. Don't blow this off and say, well, there, it's, there's more to it than that. You just don't understand. No, this is all there is to it. This is the answer to a secularized soul. In a world that takes refuge in complexity, simple answers are spurned. And I'm going to tell you, there's one reason for this. People do not want to repent. They knew not what to say, as I was preaching last night, I have sinned. Oh God, I have allowed my soul to become secularized. I did that to myself and I own it and take responsibility for it and repent of it and trust you to give me deliverance for it or from it. In a world that does not like spiritual answers, secular remedies will be sought often to people's eternal ruin. So, you know, it could be that you're here tonight and your soul is a tad too secular. It could be that you've allowed your soul to drift away from spiritual realities. And as a result, life is seeming increasingly empty. The words all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Maybe that's something that rings true in your heart. Maybe that's something that's resonating with you tonight. Maybe you would think, I, I get that's where I'm at. Your soul is in turmoil and unsatisfied. And I'm going to tell you tonight, I have no pill to prescribe. have no therapy to suggest but I do have some concise and powerful counsel. I do have the answer to your problem. Fear God and keep his commandments. May God give us the grace and the strength to always do that. Brother Demo.